All right. You want to go ahead and read the thing? Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Benton Hatch Jr. was having a bad year. By some measures, his 40-odd years before 1865 had been undeservedly successful. A native of Hillsborough, New Hampshire, Hatch had moved frequently over his adult years, and he had a mansion and a large family waiting for him back in Illinois. His military career had been a solid one, surviving innuendo, rumor, and outright investigation. He could even boast quite a bit of money, unlike many of his colleagues. But in April of 1865, his year was off to an inauspicious start. Up until February, he had been an assistant quartermaster in Illinois, but over the course of his time there, he'd seen a lot of extra money flowing into government contracts, things like supplies, building materials, and travel, and he'd helped himself to a few dollars and adjusted the books accordingly. When fingers began pointing, he'd panicked and thrown the ledgers into the Ohio River. When they washed up, there had been no choice but to endure a court-martial. An ordinary man's career and his freedom would have been over at this point. But corrupt, incompetent, wealthy Reuben Hatch was not an ordinary man, or at least he didn't have an ordinary man's connections. Following his arrest, his brother Ozias, Illinois' Secretary of State and a close friend and advisor to President Lincoln, stepped in. Alongside the existing evidence of Hatch's corruption and greed, Ozias presented letters vouching for Reuben's character, one signed by Lincoln himself. Lincoln also, at Ozias' request, appointed two sympathetic commissioners to the panel of three who would decide Reuben Hatch's fate. In February of 1865, the panel agreed that Reuben Hatch should be found guilty, but returned to work. He even received a promotion, rising from assistant quartermaster to head. Of course, he still needed a slap on the wrist, so in the last few awful months of the Civil War, Hatch was reassigned to oversee prisoner transfers at Camp Fisk in Vicksburg, Mississippi. No doubt Ozias breathed a sigh of relief as his younger brother headed south. Perhaps he felt that there was very little to be tempted by in this assignment, or that closer contact with Union prisoners of war would have a sobering effect on Reuben's character. Unfortunately, he couldn't have been more wrong. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the deadliest maritime disaster in U.S. history, the sinking of the steamship Sultana. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, your host for this episode. And I'm her brother Greg, your co-host. Our sources for this episode are a real mix. I will add those to the show notes, but I used a book called The Explosion of the SS Sultana. And another one called The Loss of the Sultana and the Recollections of Survivors by Chester Berry, who was a survivor of the wreck. I also used the information on the Sultana Association's website, which had a really good overview and I believe has the most complete data on the survivors and passengers. So this is a Civil War story, Greg. We're going to the very end of the Civil War when thousands of Union soldiers were paroled out of Confederate prisoner of war camps across the southern states. These men were emaciated, they were sick, they were dressed in rags, 
And the ex-soldiers preparing to leave a pair of prison camps, one in Andersonville, Georgia, and the other in Cahaba, Alabama, they probably thought the worst was over. So what they had to do on the first leg of their journey was to make their way from these prison camps to Vicksburg, Mississippi, which is where they were being put on steamships and headed north for the second leg of their journey. So the way they did this was they had long marches, they were put on trains, um, and okay. at every step of the way, they had inadequate shelter, they had inadequate medical care, and, of course, the rations were not wonderful. Right. So in early April, these men began pouring into Camp Fisk, which is in the banks of the Mississippi River. And the plan was to have them shipped north up the river to Cairo, Illinois, and from their home. And Cairo is a big railway hub, so they would be heading home by train. So these were not, again, these were not people in the best of shape. So after months and in some cases years of imprisonment, they were nearly all sick and about half were too weak to walk and needed to be carried. Even the men who could walk were emaciated, especially those from Andersonville. They had had the longest journey and food supplies were especially scarce there. Right. I had heard that about the, the Andersonville um, uh, prisoner of war camp. It was not... Not a place anyone wanted to wind up. Yeah, it was a nightmare. So the government had decided to use commercial steamships for this leg of the journey, and they paid for the transit. Okay. They paid $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer for a one-way ticket from Vicksburg to Cairo. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of money. It is and it isn't. In one sense, it's almost too much money because... <laughs> People are uh, yes. really, really enthusiastic about getting soldiers on board their steamship. But on the other hand, it's not so much money that you would only want to take a few hundred, right? You would want to cram your ship with as many as they could possibly hold. So despite the difficult navigation conditions heading up the Mississippi in April, this is when the Mississippi floods, Yeah, more than one steamship company jumped at this offer, and that included the owners of a cotton transport steamship named Sultana. So the Sultana was just two years old, and she had been built during the war, meaning that she had probably not been built with the best materials. She had been built with what was available. Uh, but she was huge. She measured 260 feet long, 42 feet wide, and she had three decks. So she had space for coal, trade goods, livestock, and up to 460 passengers and crew. She was powered by four interconnected fire tube boilers, which drove a pair of enormous paddle wheels mounted on either side of the ship. So she's a side wheel steamer. With the exception of the boilers and her smokestacks, the Sultana was made almost entirely from painted varnished wood, as most steamships were at the time. Okay. Because it's the middle of a civil war. Yeah. The Sultana has limited trade, not a lot of passengers. So when her captain, James Cass Mason, who was also a part owner, when he received news about this offer to transport Union soldiers from Vicksburg to Cairo, Illinois, he jumped at the chance. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, he has, he has cash flow problems. Sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like at this time, a lot of people have cash flow problems. Uh, not Quartermaster Reuben Hatch. He has very well-lined uh, pockets. And he's also, right. in this new assignment, 
responsible for arranging this transport for the released Union soldiers. So he makes a lot of deals and he gets to decide which ships get these contracts and get these get the, the cash from the government to take these soldiers north. So sometime in mid-April, he makes a deal with Captain Mason and Hatch persuaded him to take as many men as the Sultana could hold. So in exchange for this contract, which would load the Sultana well over capacity, a percentage of the fee would, of course, make it back into Hatch's bank account. So this had to have been incredibly profitable for Hatch, who had overloaded three other steamships, all of them smaller than the Sultana, in the same week. So the Sultana arrives in Vicksburg on April 23rd, and unfortunately there's a little delay at this point. Okay. One of her boilers had cracked, and the mechanic who was called in for the repair found signs of strain at several other points in that boiler. He recommended a complete overhaul, and Captain Mason, who did not want to delay his trip and risk losing thousands of dollars, he just has him patch the hole instead and says he's going to get it looked at when he gets to Cairo. So Captain Mason was eager to take as many people as he could, obviously, but the Sultana was already carrying about 70 northbound passengers, including 50 women and children, and a cargo of sugar and livestock. So he's got live horses and mules in the hold, and he's got tons and tons of sugar. He also had a full crew, which he would need to battle the currents and the flood water all the way upstream. Since the Sultana's capacity was 460, Union officials at Vicksburg decided she could hold between five and 600 POWs in addition to the passengers and crew. So this is over the limit, but it's not grossly over the limit. And this is around the same capacity that those earlier steamships had been loaded at. So Hatch and Mason, who are both making to look, who are both looking to make the trip as lucrative as possible for themselves. And remember, they're getting paid by the ticket, by the head. Yep. They yep. crammed hundreds more than that aboard. So when she pulled away from the dock at Vicksburg... The Sultana was carrying over 2,100 people, which is four and a half times her legal capacity. Oh, my God. That's insane. Yep. No argument. I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I'm kind of impressed the ship just didn't, like, pull away from the dock and then just sort of slowly sink. So almost immediately, the Sultana's crew and her coal-fired boilers had to work really hard against the current. And an additional strain on her engines was the movement of hundreds of people crammed onto each of her three decks. So whenever too many people moved to one side of the ship, the water in her boiler's tubes would flow to the lower points. And that would destabilize the steam pressure. And it would heat the boilers unevenly, which is very, very dangerous. Uh, yes, especially if they've already got cracks in them. Oh, I hate this. When the water inside the boiler flows back as the ship rights yeah. itself, it puts a strain on the overheated boiler because the iron goes through rapid temperature changes. And you got to remember, this cast iron at, in 1865 <laughs> is not the cast iron that we have today. It is brittle. It is way more prone to breaking, straining, and not good things. Yeah. So even with the overcrowded conditions and the struggling boiler, the Sultana reached Memphis on time. Oh, okay. She offloads her cargo of sugar. She takes on more coal. And she's only there for a few hours. So she pulls away from Memphis just past midnight on the morning of April 27. Okay. 
and the Sultana made it just seven miles up the Mississippi before her overtaxed boilers exploded without warning. Oh my God. And they ripped an enormous hole through the middle of the ship and filled the engine deck in superheated steam and boiling water. So this is the middle of the night. Imagine waking yeah. up to this. Yeah. Dozens of people in the lower decks died instantly and more were scalded so badly they had no chance of survival. Right. Still more were injured and killed by the shrapnel from the explosion. Both wood splinters yep. and shards of metal rained down on those who were unfortunate enough to be in the center of the ship when the explosion occurred. And this is a vapor explosion. So it's yeah. not a okay. flame explosion. It's just like a big burst of superheated steam. The explosion toppled both funnels onto our lower decks. And the fireboxes below the boilers, which are full of hot coals, yep. are now exposed to the open air. And that begins to ignite the wooden rubble that had fallen below. So within a few minutes of this explosion, the steamship is fully on fire. And the explosion occurred right below the pilot house. So there's oh, no okay. power. There's no steering. She's just drifting. Okay. The chief engineer of the Sultana, who is a man named Wintringer, was one of the few crew members to survive, thanks to being on an upper deck when the explosion occurred. Here's a quote. I stood bewildered for a moment and then saw the river perfectly alive with human beings struggling in the water, and the cry from all quarters was, put out the fire, which was getting a good headway by this time. But there was such a massive confusion and such a complete wreck of the boat that nobody apparently could get out of the position they were in. I managed to get a hold of a shutter and saw that the fire would soon force me off the boat. I took my chances and jumped into the river, end quote. Faced with the choice of scalding, burning, or drowning, like Wintringer, many people chose the water, and they jumped overboard right. as quickly as they could. Now, this is a dark night, and the water is very, very cold. We think of the Mississippi as a warm river, but in April, it's not. In April, that flooding is being caused by snowmelt, which is coming down the tributaries, yeah. and it is, it can it's, be very, cold. very cold, yeah. And it's the middle of the night, there's no light, and and just like... For perspective's sake, this isn't a river where, like, there are points where you can't even see either shore from where you are. So you get into that water. It's not like you've got a quick, you know, backstroke and you're at dry land. It's – that's terrifying. It, it's almost like jumping out in, in the middle of a lake or the ocean or something. So some people did manage to swim to shore. Well, sure, yeah, but – Yikes. But it is a wide river oh, and yeah. it's flooded, so it's even wider than usual. And also there's yeah. no bank to aim for. No. Because <laughs> the water is way up over the banks and it's running right. very fast. It's very cold. And at this point, it's also full of debris, uh, including yep. horses and mules, luggage. Oh. Yeah. Bored they didn't get offloaded of the with the sugar. No. Uh, very okay. unlucky for them. Yeah. So the luckiest of the survivors were picked up half an hour after the explosion by a passing steamship, and they okay. were treated for hypothermia, broken bones, exhaustion, and burns. The ship did sure. not stop to help. They went downriver to Memphis. They took on all of the survivors they could reach, and then they just steamed on down to Memphis. Okay. Okay. The less lucky... Survivors managed to swim to flooded trees on the western bank of the river, where they clung okay. to the branches until rescue arrived at dawn the next morning. And 
these guys had a really miserable experience because they were either falling into the water constantly or they were out of the water and getting eaten alive by gnats and mosquitoes. It just sounds like complete hell. The unluckiest, of course, drowned in the river's icy currents or died of hypothermia before they could find a way out of the water. And there were many, many strong swimmers who just were not able to get themselves out of the water. They were too sick, they were too weak, and the water was just too cold. And there were too many of them, I can presume. I mean, if you've got that, that many people in the water at the same time, that's just adding essentially more debris. Yeah, it's just hundreds and hundreds of people all trying to get out, all trying to get their heads above the water. Just yeah. a nightmare. Amazingly, there were still survivors aboard the Sultana's bow section as she finally began to sink. And she does not huh. sink until 7 o'clock the next morning. And this is about a group of about half a dozen people. They were taken off by raft as the last okay. of the wreckage settled into the water on the western side of the river. So of the 2,137 people who had been aboard when the Sultana left Memphis only six hours earlier, just 786 survivors were pulled from the river. Over the next few weeks, 31 of those survivors died in Memphis hospitals, and that makes the total death toll 1,169 people. The numbers are just staggering. So over a thousand Union soldiers were lost, along with a quarter of the crew and two-thirds of the civilian passengers. There were 35 or so children traveling aboard the Sultana, and none survived. So the sinking of the Sultana remains the deadliest maritime disaster to take place in American waters. Wow. So investigators examined the wreckage of the boiler system, and they considered sabotage by Confederate forces, of course, because that would be a great explanation. Yep, yep. Uh, But the evidence did not point in that direction. It pointed towards something else entirely. So fire tube boilers of this particular period were notoriously prone to explosion, and that's both due to design and materials. And steamship boilers are especially vulnerable because they depended on unfiltered river water for their water intake. So in rivers with heavy sediment, like the Mississippi, which boasts an average of half a pound of sediment suspended in every 1,000 pounds of river water, I mean, it is a muddy, muddy river. She's a muddy river, folks. (laughs) Um, And also that sediment number can be much higher during flood season, which it was. Uh, That sediment flows right into the tubes in the boiler and sticks. It causes an uneven flow and clogs inside the tubes. So this is a known problem, and steamship mechanics know about this problem, and boilers were regularly cleaned to deal with this problem. Right. But given the Sultana's general lack of maintenance, we can assume she had not had this service in a while. Aside from the sediment, um, as I mentioned before, the iron of the boiler itself was not great quality. This was cast iron produced in the United States before techniques were refined, and the iron used in the boilers was very brittle, and it potentially had air bubbles trapped inside. Wow. We have much better cast iron now, and this type of boiler is still produced. It's still used. It's a very efficient system. Yeah. But it is not not produced with this kind of These materials, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, these oh, were known man. to blow up. This was not an isolated yeah. incident. This was not the only steamship that's ever happened to. It's just right. that the, 
the number of people on board was so much higher. The overcrowding meant that the death toll was extremely yeah. high and there was really no chance of escape. Um, uh, unlike in some of the other accidents that happened around the same time. Sure. So scorch marks inside the boiler pieces that were recovered at the wreck clearly showed that the cause of the explosion was too little water inside the boilers. And that had led to a okay. buildup of steam pressure and the boilers overheated and exploded at that point. Yeah. With Captain Mason lost in the wreck and Quartermaster Hatch disappearing before he could be arrested. Um, oh, yeah. He, oh, did he now? He pulled the best <laughs> vanishing act of the 19th century. He ignored really? his subpoenas. <laughs> he disappeared. Um, he disappeared so effectively that not only was he not brought to trial, but yeah. nobody knows what he was doing until he died, and there are no surviving photographs of him. Huh. So so his like historical record ends right there? Well, we we know just don't he, know what happened to him after the fact? We know his family moved to Montana. Okay. And we know he died in 1871, so he would have been in his early 50s. But yeah, uh, he was never brought to trial for this, and he was never charged. Wow. Ugh, that's unsatisfying. Yep. Okay. So in the end, yep. no one was held responsible for the overcrowded conditions aboard the Sultana. So without a trial, a villain, or evidence of sabotage, the press seemed to have little to say about the sinking. But even as the investigation progressed and the survivors told their stories to reporters, the front pages were occupied with some of the biggest news items in the nation's history, including the death of President Lincoln, the hunt for John Wilkes Booth, General Robert E. Lee's surrender, and then as the Sultana went down, the pursuit of Confederate President Jefferson Davis was ongoing. Right. So like the Sultana itself, the story just sank. And it left very little trace in the public consciousness outside the survivors. Although the survivors formed the Sultana Survivors Association, two chapters, one north and one south. They petitioned the government for monuments and pensions from the 1880s through the 1930s, and they were unsuccessful on both counts. Sure. The last survivor of the wreck, Private Charles M. Eldridge, died in 1941 at the age of 96. So these guys were around for a long time. Yeah. Um, but still, the, the Sultana never, you know, this is a Titanic-sized shipwreck. Yeah. And this is a huge loss of life. I, I I had never heard of this. Yeah. That's crazy. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. It, so part of it is the timing. Sure, yeah. Um, part of it is just that this loss came on top of all the other deaths and loss in the Civil War. Yep, yeah. And part of it was just that, you know, there was this other story going on that people... Sure. Yeah. We're deeply invested in the fall of the Confederacy, the death of Lincoln, the hunt for John Wilkes Booth. All of that is going on on the front pages at the same time. And the Sultana just never captured the press or the public in the same way, which is really sad. So the wreck of the Sultana was left at the bottom of the Mississippi and oh, okay. it was gradually silted over and buried. So when the river shifted course over the next century and a quarter, land overtook the wreck. Okay. 
1982, it was discovered 35 feet below a soybean field, two miles from the river. 35 feet of sediment on top of that? I told you, it's a very dirty river. Wow! So, though a few artifacts were removed from the timbers that they located, the bulk of the ship was reburied under the field, and descendants of those who were lost in the Sultan Wreck requested that it stay buried. Uh, Like the Titanic, it is a mass grave as well as a wreck site, and a lot of the descendants feel that it should be left as it is. So, today, the Sultana is remembered as kind of a footnote to the end of the Civil War. Sure. It is memorialized by a granite monument in the Mount Olive Cemetery in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then across Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and several other states, there are smaller monuments. There are things like roadside historical markers. There's a panel and a mural in Vicksburg depicting the wreck. So it is remembered, just not in a spectacular monument the way that the Sultana Survivors Association wanted. Well, yeah. However, there is a museum opened in Marion, Arkansas in 2015 to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the disaster. Wow. It has artifacts, photographs, and survivors' stories, which were collected both by the press and by the Survivors Association. So that is the story of the tragic and completely avoidable wreck of the (laughs) SS Sultana. We do a lot of tragic and completely avoidable on this show, don't we? Yeah, it's kind of our theme. (laughs) Wow. Um, First of all, that's, I, I think it's, I think it's insane that something like this happened and is just a footnote. I mean, that is, as you said, that is the largest loss of life on a ship in the United States. Yep. And there was just too much else going on at the same time. That's, that's, and I mean, Reuben Hatch never, like nothing ever happened to him over this. Nope. That's, that's so disappointing. <laughs> I just, I, I, I want there to be something. I mean, uh, um, so I've got to ask, what, did this put any sort of restriction or regulation on the other transport ships? Not really. Oh. Um, so the also other, unsatisfying. the other overloaded <laughs> steamships that were doing that same journey from Vicksburg to Cairo were fine. Yeah. They, they carried hundreds over capacity and did not obviously did not have the same kind of horrible accident that the Sultana did. Right. Um, And, you know, part of the, one of the things I, I wanted to point out was that soldiers were not being forced to overcrowd the steamships. They wanted to get home. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's very clear. You know, almost the same as packing onto a bus at the end of the workday, yep. you just want to get home. Yep. You don't care. You just want to get out of there. You're yeah. willing to be miserable for a little while. Um, so you can get home. Just to get home. Yeah. yeah. And these, you know, they're Ooh. coming from a, a prisoner of war camp. Yeah. No, I, I definitely get their, their wanting to get home. And nobody's, I, I understand that nobody's forcing them to do any of this, but 
They just... should not have been allowed to pack the steamers. No. The way that, and at the very the least, a steamer carrying that many people, I mean, you would think there would be some sort of regulation on, hey, your boiler's about to explode. Please get this taken care of before you put, what was it, 3,000 people on your ship. Like, that's... Yeah, I mean, there's no, like, formal inspection process. This is a, a private, yeah, a civilian yeah. steamship. It doesn't right, have to meet right. any particular government regulations to get these lucrative to get contracts. These government contracts. And that's, uh, yeah. Um, that's, the person who is responsible oof. for inspecting and examining the ship would have been Reuben Hatch. And <laughs> oh, we know. Okay. Okay. We know okay. where his priorities were. So. Yes. No, I, I, I investigated myself thoroughly and I found that I was not at fault. You should never be allowed to check your own work. This is why. No. It's just why we have peer review. Yep. God. Okay. Well, that it certainly explains a little bit more of it. Um, did Reuben Hatch pull any other scams? I mean, there's the embezzling scam in Illinois, but did he do any other things before or like These... obviously since we don't have a record of, but was it's he very like hard constantly to... grifting? He's very hard to track down. Um, sure. I think he probably was, but that's just my impression from reading about him sure. and a bunch of secondhand sources. The other thing that maybe we did not stress and we should have was that he was really bad at his job. Like he was, <laughs> he was not competent and he was also yeah. very corrupt. So those yeah, two that's, things put that's together. the best of combinations. Yeah. He never should have been in this position. Um, no. And, you know, this is what happens. This is what mm-hmm. happens. It's the craziest thing if you put incompetent, incompetent corrupt people in charge of stuff. people in charge, yeah. Or at least why we shouldn't. I mean, we still do, but we shouldn't. <laughs> we need to just give those wow. guys like a crossword puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Them get, them in, get them really into Sudoku. You right. Because just, just, you can just, cheat your face off at Sudoku, and it, it's only going to harm yourself. Find a, a position where you're not directly responsible for other people's lives because, yeah, that's what yeah. happens. Yep. Uh, was his brother Ozias like cut from the same cloth, or did he seem like a fairly stand up guy? He seemed like a pretty stand up guy. He was the he was the kind of the acting governor of Illinois for a short while. Um, he was an abolitionist, okay. he was okay. passionately pro union, um, and <laughs> President Lincoln liked and trusted him. Yeah. So I don't okay. think he could have been on the same level as his younger brother. Good old Reuben. Yeah, sure. but I also don't know why he went to such lengths to protect him. To protect him, exactly. I mean, I love you a lot, but if you <laughs> are incompetent If I were corrupt, responsible for a couple thousand deaths, please. I'm not yeah, reaching out, out to, to the try. president to uh, <laughs> make sure you don't get your wrist slapped. So Golly. I, I really don't know. Yeah. 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 Well. Families are mysterious. Families really can be. Wow. Well, that is. I'm I'm really glad you chose to cover that one because I feel like these are the stories that we like. We as you know, citizens of the United States, don't know about, and we really should. Yep. So it's a big part of our history. Yeah. I always All like right. it when well, I can find something that. That I, as an American, have never heard of. <laughs> never heard of. <laughs> that was and actually it's the biggest one of its kind. Like really that's interesting, crazy, and tragic, and yeah. 
So. What did the survivors have to say about like what they thought was going into all this? Like, did they did they understand that there was already like a, a failed, not a failed, but already a faulty boiler on board? Did they, you know, were were was there a movement by them to try to get some justice for this? I think what the Survivors Association mostly focused on was getting people to know about the wreck because even during their lifetime, they would have been telling this story to people that have never heard of it, which had to have been, you know, if you survived the sinking of the Titanic and you are rolling around in New York 10 years later and you say, Oh, I survived the Titanic. People know what you're talking about. Right. But this was not, this was not that, you know, and I think the second tragedy is that it was forgotten so quickly and so thoroughly. You know, it really wasn't until the 1980s that the story began to be researched and written about in a, you know, a scholarly way. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think they just wanted a memorial, which is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note... uh, (laughs) Uh, Here at Relative Disasters, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? A big thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode uh, was brought to you by Georgia. Georgia! Who is our chief steam engine inspector here at Relative Disasters, and she has never let a bad boiler go through. Good job. Thank you, Georgia. Uh, and Suzanne. Suzanne! Our chief sediment archaeologist here at Relative Disasters. Yes. Uh, Well done, both of you. Thank you to everyone who is donating on Patreon. Uh, You guys help keep us ad-free, which is what we really want to be, um, especially now that we are being pushed more and more towards you got to have ads on your episodes. You should have ads on your episodes. There's a lot more advertising things on our podcast platform that really wants us to have ads. Uh, and we really would rather give you guys an uninterrupted listening experience. So thank you to those of you who have been donating through Patreon. Um, you guys are the best. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next episode. What's it going to be? Uh, well, Ella, um, you know, I, you know what I don't think we we talk about enough these days is the the sheer danger of toys. Absolutely, deadly, deadly little things. My kids never got them. No, no, don't give your kids toys to play with. Um, although in this case, uh, this was a a toy that somehow passed not just the pitch phase, not just the production phase. It actually went out into the public, and it would kill two kids before it would finally be recalled. We are talking, of course, about 
the bizarre and uh in in its final cases deadly water wiggle i'm so glad i've never heard of that yeah it's weird it's really weird it doesn't even like a small spoiler it doesn't even sound like fun like this doesn't sound like a fun thing to play with mm. anyway yeah. we're gonna get into it next week and it's gonna be nuts all right talk to you then <laughs>